We're going to continue our study of Genesis this morning. We're going to be in chapter 16. And uh, for any parents in the room who thought last week's sermon uh, was pretty PG-13 with cutting all the animals in half and walking through the blood uh, with the covenant, I challenge you to try explaining Abram's relationship to Hagar here in chapter 16 to your kids. I had uh, the the chance to do that or attempt to this year, my, uh, this past week, my four-year-old Ellery asked me, Daddy, what are you preaching on this Sunday? Um, which she always does and I love, but uh, I, I was very challenged to explain this week. I fumbled my way through my best attempt to explain marital infidelity and slavery at an age-appropriate um, level for a four-year-old. And uh, then she, of course, asked, can I watch a video about it? Um, because, you know, any excuse she can find to watch a video, and I had to let her down, you know, baby, I don't think they make kids' videos about this story. So um, if, if Abram and Sarai and Hagar had had Facebook 4,000 years ago, you know, where you can mark your relationship status as single or married or in a relationship, this would fall squarely in the it's complicated category. Um, that's why I've titled this message The First Loveless Triangle, But there is one uh, main point that I want us uh, to glean from this troubling story for this morning, and that is this, that it is good to wait on the Lord and that things go bad when we take matters into our own hands. It's good to wait on the Lord. You might want to write this down if you've got your bulletins. If you're at home, you're doing a digital bulletin. Um, You might want to write this one down all caps, it's good to wait on the Lord, things go bad when we take matters into our own hands. The Bible is filled with exhortations and with commendations of those who wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you. Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. Psalm 130, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. Lamentations 325, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Micah 7, 7, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah 64, 4, God acts for those who wait for him. And perhaps most well-known of all, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall faint. They shall walk and not faint. And we could add dozens more to this list. Scripture's call to us to wait on God is clear and consistent. But perhaps it is so repetitive because we are so forgetful. We are so quick to forget when times get tough forget God's past faithfulness, to forget his promise of present provision. And so instead of waiting on him, we take matters into our own hands. But this morning, 
Genesis 16 confronts us with this disturbing story that is meant to remind us of the dangers and potentially of the long-term consequences of our failing to wait on the Lord. So if you would stand with me one more time as you're able, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word, from Genesis chapter 16, we'll be in verses 1 through 16. Uh, I'm reading from the uh, ESV translation, hear the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai Abram's wife took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. He hears. God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, El Roi, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi, the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael, God hears. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you that you are a God of hearing, a God who hears our prayers. And God, this morning, we pray that we might be a people who hear. God, would you unstop our deaf ears to hear your word? Would you clear our blind eyes to see you for who you are, to see ourselves for who we are, and to be changed by the power of your gospel? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. 
Now, as I was saying, the, the overarching moral of this story is that we must wait on God. But in making that point, I, have, I think the text offers us here three additional related sub-lessons that we also need to learn. So if you're a traditionalist and you give me grief over my typical 10 and 12-point sermons, you will be um, relieved to know this morning this is your classic three-point sermon, okay? Overarching moral, we wait on God. Three points within that. Lesson number one, your theology will determine your identity which will determine your action. Let me say that again. One's theology, your view of God, will determine your identity, your view of self, which will then determine your action, the way in which you relate to the world. Sarai's problem here in verses one through six is not ultimately a biological problem, It's not ultimately a physiological problem. Hers is a theological problem. Similarly, Abram's problem is not ultimately a relational problem, a marital problem. His is a theological problem. The root problem lies in both cases in their view of God, a distorted, warped view of God. In Sarai's case, she views God as the enemy, She says in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Sarai is mad at God. She is hurt. Perhaps even resentful of God. It's not just that God has let her down. The sense that she gives us here is that God is actively working against her, preventing her from having kids. If God would just get out of the way, things would work out for me. But God has become my enemy. And so Sarai's theology then determines her identity. If God is the enemy, that makes her what? The victim. She's a victim. She's a martyr. She presumably thinks of herself as the devoted follower of God who despite years of faithfulness is being not just overlooked by God but outright oppressed by him. She's being punished. He is preventing me. God is the problem, she says. And when that becomes your identity, victim, then pretty quickly you feel entitled. You feel rather justified in standing up for yourself. If God's not going to stand up for me, I'm going to have to stand up for myself. I have to take matters into my own hands. And the way in which Sarai goes about doing that reminds us of that age-old, regrettable, sociological truth that hurt people hurt people. We've seen that in, in, in previous recent sermons. I trust that we have all seen that in our own lives, in our own relationships. And we see it this morning with Sarai. Hurt people will hurt people. Victims tend to victimize Because we convince ourselves that we deserve a little bit of happiness in this life, but we have been robbed of it by someone else. And so we begin to accept the reality of the dog-eat-dog world that we live in and the fact that if you want to make an omelet in this life, sometimes you got to crack a few eggs. And if you have been beaten down into the ground, sometimes you got to Use others to pull yourself up. And hey, if you pull them down to the ground in the process, that's life. Right? So be it. 
Gordon Wenham notes, throughout the ancient Near East, polygamy was resorted to commonly as a means of obviating childlessness, but wealthier wives preferred the practice here of surrogate motherhood. Right? The mistress could then feel that her maid's child was her own. Think of the handmaid's tale, where the handmaids are essentially just baby incubators for the wealthier and fertile class of women. Margaret Atwood just plagiarized Genesis 16. Kent Hughes notes, tellingly, neither Sarai nor Abram ever refers to Hagar by name in the account, but only by label. They call her my servant, your servant. Hughes says it's so much easier to depersonalize those you abuse. And that's true. And make no mistake, that is exactly what's going on here. Abuse. I found it so interesting in my research this week that virtually every commentator I read understood Hagar's contempt for Sarai here in verse 4 to be a form of pride. We hear that when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And everybody wants to interpret that as some sort of pride, some haughty disdain. Like, ha, now look how pregnant I am. Abram will love me more. I have a kid and you don't. But there is nothing in the text that suggests to me that Hagar wanted any part of this relationship with Abram or any part of the child that is a result from it. I don't care how valued children were in the ancient world. I think when Hagar realized that she had conceived as a result of rape, let's call it what it is, rape, she was angry. She was contemptuous of Sarai, forever sending her into Abram's bed. And when Sarai recognizes Hagar's contempt, she starts to feel like the balance of power is shifting. Like the tables have turned. She's starting to get worried that Hagar might do something stupid, like abort the baby, like keep the baby for herself and run away to Egypt. And so what does Sarai do in her desperation? She attempts to reassert her power back over Hagar. Verse 6, then Sarah dealt harshly with her. And in doing so, she shoots her own plan in the foot and she drives Hagar away. Now, Let's turn to Abram. Theology, identity, practice. God isn't the enemy for Abram here so much as he's just absent. He's conspicuously absent. Abram has had a profound, intimate encounter with God in every chapter that we've seen him in so far. Chapter 12, he was uniquely called by God. In chapter 13, God personally took him on a tour and showed him the promised land. Chapter 14, God miraculously helped him defeat the four superpowers of the ancient world. Chapter 15, God formed his special covenant with Abram. But here, in chapter 16, tellingly, there is no mention of God interacting with Abram at all. Abram is now 85 years old. When he left Ur, he was 75. So he's been waiting for 10 years now for God to make good on his promise of a child, but God seems to have gone silent. And so when Sarai says, sleep with Hagar, Abram's response isn't, but God said you and I were supposed to be one flesh, Genesis 2. His response isn't, but God said he would give us a child, Sarai, and we can trust him. Let's wait on the Lord. No, Abram's response is, yes, dear, 
Verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He listened to her. We've heard up to this point in every chapter, God spoke, Abram listened. God spoke, Abram obeyed. But here, we don't hear from God. It's been a while, and so Abram instead listened to the voice of Sarai. And friends, when God stops being God for you, when you stop listening to God's voice, you will naturally start listening to all the other voices around you instead. You will find substitutes for God. God designed our hearts for worship. He designed our hearts for relationship, to worship him. But if we're not worshiping him, if we're not in relationship with him, if we're not listening for him, then we will find the next best thing. We will worship success, we'll worship the American dream, we'll worship relationships, your kids, we'll worship your spouse. That's Abram. He stopped listening to God, started listening to Sarai. And friends, if we are not listening to God, if we are not living to please God, we will always be living to please someone else instead. I mean, most often it's ourselves, right? Most often we become our own gods, we live to please ourselves, but maybe for you, you're like Abram. You live to please someone else, you're a people pleaser. Because let's be honest, it is so much harder to live to please God. God's holy standards, God's good desires for us are so much higher than any other human beings that we encounter And frankly, living to please God just doesn't give us the same degree of instantaneous gratification, right? I can go on Facebook right now and get my hourly dopamine fix by seeing exactly how many of my friends liked my last post. I don't get that with God. God doesn't work that way. So instead, many of us, like Abram, will settle for and we will get our identities from pleasing other people instead of pleasing God. And when that becomes your identity, people pleaser, our course of action becomes rather obvious. We simply say, yes, dear. Abram, I want a child. Go commit adultery. Yes, dear. Abram, I immediately regret this plan, and it's all your fault. Yes, dear. She's your servant. Do whatever you want. Okay, I'm going to beat your new wife, Hagar, that you're supposed to be protecting. I'm going to beat her, the mother, the carrier of your unborn child. I'm going to beat her into submission. Yes, dear. And friends, I suspect that most of us here aren't malicious, God-resenting victimizers of other people We just want people to like us. And we'll do what what we need to to get people's approval. But in any case, we need to recognize this morning that our theology will determine our identity, which will determine our action. If you view God as the enemy, you will view yourself as the victim and you will treat others in a way that makes you feel not quite so powerless. If you view God as an absent father, you will see yourself as directionless. And so you will live to please others instead. 
they will fill that void. If you view God as a vending machine, you will view yourself as the button pusher who is in charge. And you will use God as a prop to get your own way. If you view God as a moral policeman, you'll view yourself as a disappointing failure. And you'll constantly be reliving that cycle of sinning and then feeling ashamed, resolving to just try harder next time and then falling short and feeling even worse. But, but, if you view God as a loving and gracious father, you will begin to see yourself the way that he sees you, as someone worth dying for, as someone worth sending his only son to die for. And your action, your response, will be to joyfully surrender your heart and your life to him in humble obedience and in grateful worship. Lesson number two of this story is the slippery slope of sin. There is a slippery slope to sin. It's a certain entropy to sin. Sin naturally tends to compound upon itself. Just consider the domino effect at play here in Genesis 16. Hagar shouldn't even be in their lives in the first place. She is with them because presumably she was part of uh, Pharaoh's gift to Abram back in chapter 12, the sort of reverse dowry that Pharaoh offered Abram as a token of his appreciation for his favorite new concubine, Sarah. So if Abram had never distrusted in God, if Abram had never fled in fear instead of faith to Egypt, if he'd never lied about Sarai's identity and threw her under Pharaoh's bus to save his own skin, there wouldn't even be the option here in chapter 16 for Sarai to craft this alternative to God's plan for a child. It all started with that sin. Hughes points out, there is also, there's an ironic reversal here. Down in Egypt, trustless Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian pharaoh. Now, back in Canaan, untrusting Sarai gave Abram over to her Egyptian servant, Hagar. Abram's fiasco in Egypt was costly indeed, and it was. One sin leads to the next. Abram's sin led to Sarai's sin here. Her mere suggestion of this plan is inherently sinful. Abram's acquiescence to the plan is even more sinful. He went along with it. And both of their sin then drives Hagar to sin in her hatred of Sarai, to which Sarai responds with even more sin by blame shifting and essentially cursing Abram in verse five, to which Abram responds by sinning and further stepping out and, and enabling Sarai's further abuse of Hagar in, chapter, in, in verse six. And the whole sin scene ends in sin, in tragedy for everyone involved. Hagar has lost her home, her protection. Sarai has lost her servant, her hope of a child. And Abram has lost his new wife, his unborn child, and the trust of his first wife. And oh, by the way, because of this attempt to circumvent God's plan, to shortcut God's plan, God will make them wait an additional 13 years before Isaac will eventually be born. Shortcuts do not pay off. 
The fallout doesn't even end there. And I've included verse 12 in your bulletins there under this point because we need to understand just how far-reaching the consequences of this slippery slope of sin can be. God prophecies that Ishmael, the product of this entangled web of sin, Verse 12, shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Do you know historically who the descendants of Ishmael are? Do you know? It's the Muslims. The entire religion of Islam, the false religion of Islam, was born out of this very episode in Genesis chapter 16. 1.8 billion people on the planet today who explicitly reject Jesus as the Christ and believe that anyone who professes him as such is damned to hell. They all trace their origins back to this very story and the conception of Ishmael. Our actions have consequences. Friends, you might not think that the consequences of your sin are going to be all that bad. It's just a little white lie, right? Everybody punches out early on Fridays and fudges on their timesheet a little bit. It's okay if I think that thought as long as I don't act on it. Pornography doesn't really hurt anyone. Gossip doesn't really hurt anyone. She'll never even know we were talking about her. God doesn't want me to read the Bible out of a sense of obligation, so I just get to it when I feel like it. I don't really need to evangelize. That's for other people who have that spiritual gift. They probably already know about Jesus anyway. What's the big deal with one little bite of fruit? And millennia later, we are still reaping the consequences. By the way, Notice the parallelism between Adam and Eve's sin in the garden in Genesis 3 and Abram and Sarai's sin and fall here. Sarai distrusted God. Then she took Hagar, that's the same words in Hebrew. She gave her to her husband, same words. And Abram, instead of listening to God and obeying him passively, listens to his wife and complies. It's the fall all over again. Genesis 3 all over again. And 4,000 years later, we are still reaping the consequences. Islam. Friends, the consequences of our sin might not seem all that dire to us in the moment. But Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In Romans 6 informs us that the wages of all sin is death. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in only one point, one little sin, how bad could the consequences be, has become guilty of all of the law. And you and I need to recognize this morning that we do not have the faintest glimpse of just how far-reaching, how serious the consequences of our sin can be. We ought to be far more fearful of the effects of our sin than we are. If you are in Christ, then yes, the penalty of your sin has been paid for. Praise God. But the effects, the real world consequences 
of your sin don't just get erased. And Jesus says that if our sin causes even one child to so much as stumble, it would be better to tie a big rock around your neck and jump in the ocean. Jesus said if your own eye causes you to sin, you'd be better off plucking it out than having your whole body and soul be thrown into hell. Jesus was acutely aware of the dire, drastic consequences of our sin. Are we? Are we? But here's the good news for sinners like you and me, friends. Point number three is that God sees the needy. God sees the needy. As much as this story is about waiting on the Lord and the dangers of our sinful failure to do so, it is equally, if not more so, about God's care for those in need. That's the bulk of the passage. First six verses are about the dangers of sin, but then we get ten verses about God's care for the needy, for needy Hagar here, and later even for her son Ishmael. We hear in verse 7, the angel of the Lord, who Hagar will soon identify in verse 13 as God himself. And so many scholars believe this is another Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. He finds Hagar on her way to Shur. Okay, so three important things we need to note about that. Number one, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son are all active throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of history. God's work of redemption didn't start with Jesus being born in a manger. Christ has been redeeming our messes since day one. Praise God. Praise God. Point number two, the angel of the Lord doesn't wait to be found by Hagar. He seeks her out on her way back to Egypt, like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one lost sheep, like the father of the prodigal son who doesn't wait and make him sweat it out on the front porch but comes running down the road to meet him. God doesn't wait. In love, he pursues and seeks us out. And point number two, number three, sorry, is where does he find Hagar? Where does he find her? It's on her way to Shur. That is, in the desert on the border with Egypt. Hagar is headed home. She's left Canaan. She's headed home back to Egypt. And isn't that like us too? When life gets tough and we feel like we just need to escape, we run back to what is familiar to us. Hagar has traveled with Abram's family for years now. She has seen God's hand of blessing over them with abundant riches. She has witnessed firsthand God miraculously defeat the unstoppable kings from the east. She has heard of God's special covenant with Abram, this relationship, that he is a real God. But when trials come, her default is to go back to her old life, her pagan life, the impotent gods of Egypt. Fortunately for you and me, friends, 
even when we turn to the wrong places, we turn back to old coping mechanisms, looking for comfort and security, God pursues us and seeks us out. And he does that with Hagar. And when he finds her, he asks her two very pointed questions here. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai. So clearly this is omniscient God talking. How else would he know who she is? And he asks her, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? And watch Hagar's response in verse 8. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. God asks her a two-part question, but she only responds to the first question, where she's coming from. She says, I'm running from Canaan, running from Sarai. She doesn't really know where she's going, because at this point she's just reactively running from her past. And I think the point for you and me this morning is you cannot outrun your past. Do you know that? You cannot outrun your past. If your whole life is determined by where you have come from, your past will inevitably dictate your future. You have to make peace with your past before you can leave it there in the past and have any hope of moving on. When my father left my family in sixth grade, I made up my mind that I would live the rest of my life trying to make him feel sorry for ever making such a big mistake, for ever leaving a son as awesome as I was. And with every straight A report card, with every no hitter I pitched, with every perfect score on the SAT, with every tennis regional championship, when I stood up to give my valedictorian address at graduation and publicly shamed my father for not being there for me, and I thought I would feel justified. I thought I would feel satisfied. I thought I would finally feel vindicated. Do you know what I felt? Empty. Because if you don't deal with your past, you'll be doomed to always be reacting against it and it will ultimately dictate your identity and your future. Fortunately for Hagar, the Lord confronts her and he forces her to face her past. In verse 9, he says, return to your mistress and submit to her, which might sound cruel to us. Just like it might sound cruel to us that God would continue promising Abram and Sarai children, but keep delaying year after year. It might seem cruel to us. God has done that in your life with infertility. It might seem cruel to us that God took that loved one away from you too early, too soon. It might seem cruel to us that God has not yet redeemed your loveless marriage. It might seem cruel to us that God has not yet saved your prodigal children, that he has allowed your prodigal children to continue to stray from the faith on the path of destruction. We don't always get to see why God does what he does, but the Bible defines faith as believing without seeing. And the Bible asks us, what use is your faith when everything is peachy 
Anybody can believe in a good God when life is good. But will you still believe when times get tough? Because if your faith won't sustain you through life's storms, then what's it really good for anyway? Friends, we need a faith that reminds us, even in the darkest of nights, that God still sees us. We need a faith that assures us that when we feel like all hope is lost, that God still hears us and our cries. We need a faith in our moments of deepest despair that still clings to the hope of God's good promises. And even in Hagar's dark night of the soul, God breaks through with his light and his promise in verse 10 that he will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. What an amazing promise. Why? Why does God bother with this lowly pagan servant girl and make her such an astounding promise? Because verse 11, the Lord listens to affliction. Verse 13, he is a God of seeing. He is a God who looks after me. Verse 14, he is the living one who sees me. And friends, I don't presume to know what kind of baggage you, you may or may not be bringing into this service today at home, what's going on in your heart, how this sermon is hitting you. But I have to believe that there is someone here who feels pretty invisible, who feels like your parents don't really see you, it feels like your spouse doesn't really get you. It feels like no one really gets you. No one knows you, the real you. And you feel alone. I just want to say to that person this morning, in love from God's word, that God sees you. That God hears you. That God knows you. He gets you. Because he loves you, he cares about you. And he promises you that though your father and mother have forsaken you, I, the Lord, will take you in. Psalm 27, 10. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. He promises that he is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. He promises, Psalm 40, 17, that as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer, oh my God. And so my simple question for you this morning, friends, is are you needy? God sees the needy. Are you needy? Listen, Jesus only came for the needy. He didn't come for everyone. He only died for the needy. Mark 2.17, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so I ask you again, friends, have you admitted to yourself and to the Lord this morning that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? And have you trusted in Christ alone to be that Savior for you? Thanks be to God that he is altogether trustworthy and worth waiting for. And thanks be to God that even when we forget it and we fail and we take shortcuts, take matters into our own hands, that we have a Savior who sees us, who loves us, and who meets us in our need. Let's pray.